Welcome to the Goodwin Turnback Museum podcast, where we bring you lectures, readings, and discussions that expand on the Goodwin Turnback Museum's commitment to scholarship, creativity, and inclusion. Over the next few podcasts, we will present a series of talks in conjunction with the exhibition of Mark Podwell's Terrorism Portfolio at the Goodwin Turnback Museum. On April 14th, a panel of historians convened at the museum to discuss historical anti-Semitism. The program was led and moderated by David Kramer, librarian and professor of Talmud and Rabbinics at the Jewish Theological Seminary. Stephen Fine, professor of Jewish history at Yeshiva University, began by addressing Jews and Judaism in the Roman Empire. Robert Chazen, professor of Hebrew and Judaic studies at NYU, spoke about medieval Jewish history. And Elisa Bemperad, professor of history at Queens College, focused on modern Russian and Eastern European Jewish history. You know, this uh, exhibit um, by my, my friend Mark Podwell is his animami in, in, in many, many levels. It's, this is what I believe in, in the age when um, the destruction of the Jews and, and the rebirth of the state of Israel has had such significance um, for our communities around the world. But I deal with people who've been dead at least 2,000 years most of the time. Now, the advantage of dealing with people who've been dead at least 2,000 years is that they seldom complain about what I say about them. But the reality is that in order to study people who've been dead 2,000 years, I have to come up with a lot of words to put between very few texts and artifacts. And that has a lot to do with me and my colleagues and how we read the word. And so it's as if you have a stone here and a stone here, and then there's that stuff in between, and that's, that's us. We make up the stories. We make up the interpretations. And it's different from medieval, where they know a little more, and it's different from modern, where they know too much. Um, in my field, we really do have to work very carefully with the artifacts and with the text to, to put them together. That, that's number one. Number two, what I'd like to deal with tonight are just some of the ancient themes um, that, that Mark has, has brought to life. And, and I do that as someone who deals with uh, the Greco-Roman period, meaning more or less from the time of the coming of Alexander the Great to the Near East in the fourth century BCE, all the way past Muhammad, which gives me about a thousand years. Uh, but that's good because I don't have that many sources. Um, so I get some extra time. Now, can we turn the lights down just a little bit more? Would that help? Is that possible? Or do we lose the filming? You're okay? Okay. Now, what we're seeing here is, is Mark's image of the Nazis carrying off the menorah. Can you still see me? Oh, good. Of, Mark, of the uh, Nazis carrying off the menorah uh, next to the Arch of Titus. Now, I, I spent a lot of time with the Arch of Titus. In fact, a couple years ago, I found uh, with a team the original yellow paint on the menorah at the Arch of Titus. And in another six months, you will see the Arch of Titus looking just as bright and colorful as Mark Podwell's art imagines these periods to be. None of this was white and gray. It was all shiny and bright. And we, and we know that. We know that through, chemical, through electronic testing and scanning of the artifacts. And so you see the Arch of Titus where generations of Jews have believed that those folks who are carrying the menorah are Jews. Well, they're not. They're Romans, right? 
they're Romans if you had a good art history course. They're Jews if you came from Brooklyn or, or Queens or from Riverdale or from all those places. If you're a nice Jew, I walked around Yeshiva University and asked the um, staff people, who's carrying the menorah? And everybody told me it's, it's the Jews. And of course, uh, an Israeli test to this day for little kid, fifth graders, secular schools, comprehension test, the state of Israel symbol. Who's carrying the menorah? Question A, the Romans, B, the Jews, C, and then there's something else. The correct answer on the test is the Jews. And so this is a very long-standing Jewish belief that makes it even more complex to look at Mark's image when you know that many, many Jews looking at this artifact are seeing something that is a counter-story, a counter-narrative, another way of looking at the world. And we're looking at Mark Codwall, looking at artifacts, looking at stories, um, through the eyes of heaven, right? If anybody saw um, the Prince of Egypt, right? Looking through heaven's eyes, looking through the eyes of, of Jewish experience and, and interpreting those images in, in interesting ways that express our world and give us access to that world. Okay, so this is, to go back just a little bit, Mark's image uh, related to um, Hanukkah, right? We know a lot about what happened in 166, 164 BCE. Uh, we light candles related to it every December. Um, Mark reads this as follows. Uh, the, Bible, uh, the Bible calls idolatry an, an abomination. When Antiochus IV conquered Jerusalem to promote Greek culture, he, forbid, he forbade Jewish religious practices, even desecrating the holy temple with an idol of Zeus. Now, we all know reading the first and second books of Maccabees, that the imperial takeover of the Near East, first by various Greek military communities, and then by the Romans, was nothing less than an imperial takeover. And that all of the communities in the Near East responded in different ways. Some were more open, some were less open to this process that we like to call Hellenization, but it's a really bad word because Hellenization is always set as opposite of Judaism. Judaism and Hellenism, as if they're opposites, as if David and Goliath is the model for all dispute throughout history that, of course, in the end makes it that Jews are fundamentally racially different from Germans. This is a very long mythology developed in the 19th century in particular of Hellenism being the opposite of Judaism. And so this image and this description are dealing with that sense of us versus them, which is the one that comes into your local prayer book most of the time. But the reality in the ancient world was a far more complex attempt to deal with a new imperial power and the overstepping of that power at one moment in Judea in 166 BCE. Now, uh, there's one more point I should point out, and that is while um, they did sacrifice pigs in the temple, there doesn't seem to have been a statue in the temple. Or just, just a minor piece. Now, on the other hand, that making the world Hellenistic is something that Jews were pretty good at. Barring praying to non-Jewish gods and eating food they shouldn't eat and profaning the Holy Land and leaving circumcision and all those other distinctly Jewish things, most other things were naturally taken on as naturally as the fact that I have collars on my shirts and that we're all dressed like everyone else and that we're speaking an Anglo-Saxon language. 
and yet. And so the coming of the Greeks, the coming of Greek culture was everywhere, down to the nouns used throughout rabbinic literature to this very day, and rabbis called Rabbi Alexandri after Alexander. This is the tomb of, uh, of, uh, of Zechariah in Jerusalem. It's not really Zechariah, it's called that. It's from the Hasmonean period. It's from the time of the Maccabees. It's a perfectly good Hellenistic tomb. You find them all over the Greek and Roman world. The difference between the Jewish ones and the non-Jewish ones, there's no images on the outside. There's no carved sculpture. There's no gods. Other than that, you would not know the difference. Similarly, the Jewish coins that you see here. Is this going to work? Does this thing work? Yeah. Jewish coins, typical Jewish coins, and in fact, John Hyrcanus I is called John Hyrcanus I because sometimes he's called Yochanan and sometimes he's called Hyrcanus, depending upon the moment, and his whole way of ruling as a priest and a, a king is a Greek way of ruling. And the only difference between his coins and those of other people in this region, again, no images. And when there finally was a revolt, when Herod came in, and took over under the Romans in, uh, in 39 BCE. And the last of the Hasmoneans defended themselves against the Romans under Antig Ant Mattathias Antigonus in the same year. The Hasmoneans did what any good Greek king did, minted coins, but with distinctly Jewish images. In other words, we're dealing with a far more complex relationship. Sometimes it went well, sometimes it didn't. But it's Jews accommodating to a larger Hellenistic universe. Next slide, please. Oh, I have a slide for you. There it goes. All right, let's try this one. I almost didn't. Let's try this one. This is really nice. You see that Mark Podwell has created his own coins. The Talmud also makes its own coins, by the way. But here you see Vespasian, and down below you see the she-wolf suckling Romulus and Remus, right? Taking the menorah in its mouth. No Roman ever made a coin like that. But let me show you what they did make. The coins of the destruction of Jerusalem in the year 70. Up above, you can see the same Vespasian, but the palm tree represents Judea. This woman represents crying Judea, and next to her, a Roman. But don't think the Jews were treated any differently than anybody else. If you revolt against the Romans, it's a bad thing. And in fact, Julius Caesar was considered to be a, a, have gone over the line as a mass murderer in his conquest of Gaul in the first century BCE. And here you see Julius Caesar's coins from 100 years earlier, which have the same kind of captives. And while the palm tree here is the trophy, here you see an actual trophy. There is no sculpture intact, however, that is as upsetting as the dying Gaul. In other words, don't mess with the Roman Empire. They are the imperial power. You don't mess with them. Let's be clear. Jewish kings didn't want to get involved in the war. Titus's girlfriend was the sister of one of the Jewish kings. Soldiers, generals in Titus's inner circle were Jewish leaders from Alexandria. And then there was Josephus. In other words, this was a far more complex thing, this destruction of Jerusalem in the year 70, than just us against them. And of course, the Talmudic rabbis know that and read it as such, read it as an event caused by zealots and not something that the entire people was involved in. Next one. Um, then there's this one, which is very upsetting. But in fact, his use of the Arch of Titus 
is so um, profound. Because after all, if you replace the Romans with the Nazis, you've gotten to the heart of Mark Podwall, right? You've gotten to somebody who can look at an object like the Arch of Titus and say, they've done it to us before, they've done it to us now, behold door of a door, right? In each and every generation. Now that's good theology, but it makes for a very sad life. And historians like me have spent the last hundred and something years trying to undo that. In fact, um, there was a scholar at Columbia University named Salo Barone who he and his students were so committed to talking about the happy side of Jewish history that they went too far and made it too happy. <laughs> right? And I was the one, and I was one of the, Eric David Engel and I were among the few who came out and said, it ain't true. It wasn't as happy as they say. And it didn't make people joyous. In fact, I once did an exhibition on the history of the ancient synagogue at Yeshiva University Museum, and despite everything that we knew in the 1990s about how Judaism and especially Christianity interacted, none of it found its way into the exhibition. And I think part of that is, A, we all had this wishful thing that everyone would get along, and B, I don't think we would have gotten federal funding if we had emphasized that one. In other words, there are all sorts of reasons that people say what they say meaning to or not meaning to. Um, these stories are complex, and, and David said very nicely, these stories are complex, and all we do for a living is make them more complex, but also more compelling. In other words, if we maintain one story forever, um, then we're dead. People live by their stories and how they retell them, and the historian's job is to act as a control on our imaginations. Now, let me just point out that not only did Jews in the ancient world have position, but sometimes they could imagine in public destroying pagan artifacts. And so this is a synagogue in Syria at a place called Dura-Ropos. And at Dura-Ropos, um, which I'm happy to say wasn't destroyed by ISIS, at least not the synagogue, it's safely kept, I thought I'd never say this, in the Damascus Museum, uh, locked behind a wall so that uh, if anybody came in, they might not notice it. This amazing synagogue with amazing wallpapers, wall paintings. What you see up above is the, oops, sorry, uh, wrong one, is the Temple of Dagon in Gaza. Now, if it doesn't look like a Roman temple, nothing does, right? So there's a double entendre going on here. These are them pagans that we live with, and these are those pagans we lived with in the past. Okay? On the far side, is the Ark of the Covenant. Let me see if I can get that. There it is. You see the Ark of the Covenant? Right? It's on a wagon. It all these guys standing there like this and saying, hello, Ark of the Covenant. Uh, and that's exactly what their job is, to greet it as it's being schlepped by an ox back to Jerusalem or back to Judea. Now, the Ark of the Covenant, as you know from Indiana Jones, is a very powerful item. That's why it's stored in a warehouse outside of Washington. And so it has to be kept very, very carefully. Now, the Ark of the Covenant, in this case, however, uh, doesn't look like that thing on Indiana Jones at all, right? What does it look like? A cabinet. Because by the third century, Jews had decided that the cabinet that the Torah is kept in actually 
isn't just a covenant, but it reminds us of the Ark of the Covenant. That's why that thing in your synagogue is called an Arona Kodesh, the Ark of Holiness, right? The place where holiness, where God's holiness is, is, is maintained. And so these people, when they made a picture of the Ark of the Covenant destroying the gods of Syria, and you can see the gods, you see his neck, there's his head, right? He's not in good shape. All of the, all of the vessels destroyed. Right? When the ark does its bidding and Judaism wins over those pagans, right? who does it? The ark in your local synagogue. In other words, we did it. And so in a city on the border of the Roman Empire, on the border of the Persian Empire, with Jews who spoke Persian and Jews who spoke Greek and Jews who spoke Aramaic. In fact, this is a building with more languages than any other building found in the ancient world. Two kinds of Aramaic, Greek, um, Greek, uh, Persian, and Hebrew. So a building with more languages than any building that's yet been discovered in the ancient world. When they thought of all those people down the street with all their different kinds of temples, including those Christians in the third century, because there's a church down the street, they imagined not just the destruction of paganism in biblical times, but in those days at this season. And so, once again, that complexity of living in a world where Jews had the chutzpah to put such a thing on the walls of their synagogues, that's very different than what they tell us about Jews constantly being persecuted in the Roman Empire. Now, I am not suggesting that those Romans were, were peachy keen on Judaism. In fact, we have lots of literature, mostly preserved by Jews, that tells you that they weren't. And if it wasn't preserved by Jews, it was preserved by Christians. Do you know why? Jews were of interest to Christians for all the reasons everybody knows. And so Gauls and Carthaginians and all those people you've never heard of, they may also have written stories, or they may have had stories. They certainly had stories that they told. But has anybody ever walked up to you and said, hi, I'm a Carthaginian, I'd like to tell you my history, and my books are in the library, right? Has anybody ever come up to you and say, hi, I'm an ancient Gaul. My ancestors were beaten by Julius Caesar, right? No, it's like the Samaritans, all 700 of them. You can walk up to a Samaritan and say, hello, Mr. Samaritan, how's by you? Right? But no one ever does. And so they talk around them. And much of their literature has been lost through the ages um, because they've been persecuted and it wasn't preserved by anybody but them. Okay? We know a lot about Jews because we care about Jews and we're an obsessively writing culture as the Library of Jewish Studies at Queens College which will attest, I'm sure, right? And JTS and YU Library certainly attest, and then go to the National Library in Jerusalem. We write more than anybody else and more is written about us than almost anybody else from antiquity to the present. So we know more about the Jewish experience than any other, and we actually care about it. And those are reasons why these things get discussed. Was it anti-Semitism? No, thank God. It was the usual thing of being a small nation within a larger world. Things changed with the rise of Christianity. And I end with this image, which is a column from a place called Laodicea in Turkey, one of the uh, cities of the apocalypse, according to the um, book of Revelation, where this column had a very nice menorah on it, 
complete with lamps that were lit, and a shofar on the side, and if you look real carefully, you can see a lulav, a palm frond over here, and someone came through and bashed on a cross. But remember, where Judaism had a hard time under political Christianity in late antiquity and then going on into Bob's period with a vengeance, have you ever met a Roman pagan? Have you ever met a Mayan who does Mayan ritual? The Jews are here to talk about it. Thank you very much. Nice to be able to see you all. Um, If I had realized that I was set up to speak after the humorous Stephen Fine, I, I, I think I probably would have uh, found a reason to be elsewhere this evening. A very tough act to follow. Uh, I'm going to complicate things uh, in a different way, uh, <laughs> a different and less humorous way. Uh, yeah, by the way, I'm eschewing all reference to happiness and sadness. We're just talking more about numbers and uh, external realities. Let me indicate, uh, I, I spent time, I know... Oh, okay. Okay. The, um, I know Mark Podwall uh, very well and esteem his artwork deeply. I spent some time this evening circling around the room and looking at the material with a special emphasis on the material that comes from the period of my academic specialization and the period about which I'm uh, supposed to be speaking uh, to you this evening, essentially the Middle Ages and early modern period. And what I want to suggest is that in one sense, I agree totally with what he's presented. That sense is the extent to which the Holocaust, which is the end point for his collection, is grounded in ideas and images that extend backward through the Middle Ages into Steve Fine's period as well. In that regard, from an academic perspective, uh, I accept fully his narrative of a continuity of ideas and images. In saying this, I also am indicating that I don't see this 
as imagery of Jewish experience in Europe from the Middle Ages to the modern period. There is a lot of focus on negative events, and there were negative events. Um, one of the delights for me this evening is coming back to Queens College where I taught for six years. And just as I was finishing my teaching here in 1986, uh, I was also finishing a book entitled European Jury in the First Crusade. So that's a topic that's absorbed me. It absorbs Mark Podwall and the sense that that's an important that involves important Christian images of Jews and Judaism, I agree to fully. I do think, on the other hand, that it's important to keep the events in perspective. The First Crusade and the Second Crusade and the Third Crusade were not precursors to the Holocaust. The number of Jewish casualties were, uh, was minuscule, number one. And number two, the authorities of state and church made every effort to make sure that the violence of the Crusades not be deflected against Jews. And they were, by and large, successful. The narrative of the reality of Jewish life in Europe, particularly Northern Europe, and that is the center of the Holocaust, the reality is that if we go back a thousand years to, let's say, roughly the year a thousand, there were almost no Jews whatsoever in Northern Europe. Jewish population was centered in the old areas from Mesopotamia through the Mediterranean basin. Jews began to filter northward as Northern Europe emerged from its long backwardness and became a vital, dynamic society that attracted Jews. Over the period from the year 1000 down to the 1930s, in a certain sense really, down to today, the Jews of Northern Europe whom we designate Ashkenazic Jews became the largest element in the Jewish world. That could not have happened if actual living was a constant bombardment of persecution. So I'm drawing a distinction. On the living level, Northern Europe supported the growth of the Jewish people to the point when 
a very young branch of the Jewish people expanded, grew, and became the dominant demographic, cultural, intellectual, and religious element in worldwide Jewry. Now, during this period, and th this is what I'm suggesting as the two levels of the story. During this period of vitality and development in Northern European civilization that sponsored and supported vitality and development in its Jewish minority, during this period, imagery emerged that was fated to play a role in the horrors of the Holocaust. The imagery was largely popular imagery. We're living through a period today, we see it every evening on our television sets. We're living through a period of enormous demographic movement particularly this tragic movement out of the tumultuous Middle East in the direction of Europe. Uh, these are people fleeing horrors of war. Let me indicate, by the way, the Jews moving into Northern Europe were not fleeing those kind of horrors. They were being attracted by the vibrance of Northern European civilization. But we see this movement, and what do we learn? We learn on the one hand that there is across Europe an outpouring of sympathy and a desire to be helpful, but at the same time, and probably destined to predominate, there is a recoiling from accepting newcomers, a concern that an influx of Syrians and Pakistanis and Africans will alter irrevocably the nature of European civilization. The gates are in the process of being closed the great country in which we live, which is grounded on immigration, is not rushing pell-mell to accept these immigrants either. Societies of all kinds are very reluctant to accept newcomers and into Northern Europe from the beginning, Jews were quintessential newcomers, and the populace, by and large, was uncomfortable with these newcomers. On the one hand, there was enough support from the ruling class, from the ecclesiastical authorities, to enable the Jews to settle in and the Jewish population to grow and expand. 
On the other hand, the kind of, let me almost call it an instinctual reservation about newcomers took a toll. And this is captured in Mark's work. A sense, for example, that Jews were ultimately a very hostile people to others around them. Well, to a certain extent, that was true. Uh, the slide that Steve showed us about the destruction of the pagan deities. Yeah. Uh, there was that. Jews were challenged by a very aggressive Christianizing, Christian and Christianizing population. The church was committed, deeply committed, to missionizing among Jews. Jews resisted. How do you resist? Well, partly by emphasizing the positive in your own religious heritage, and partly by saying negative things about the alternative. So to the extent that the church ratchets up its missionizing pressure, yeah, there is Jewish hostility. What's striking in Northern Europe is the growing sense that Jews are hostile not only to Christianity, the religious faith, and its symbols, although, by the way, that's a pretty serious matter in its own right, but to, to, the, but to the bearers of that faith as well. The notion that Jews represent a very harmful group of people, a group of people in this, a group of people intent on bringing harm to the society that hosts them. Jews, for reasons that we don't have time to go into this evening, are kind of forced into the money business. Let me put it a little differently. They are precluded from diversifying economically in a relatively normal way. And Europe, European, Northern European society is in a period of rapid economic expansion. It's a great setting for encouraging people with limited economic options to focus on, call it the money lending business, the usury business, the banking business, the transfer of capital business. And the sense grows, you know, it's the way we have felt in the United States post 2007, 2008, like those damn bankers occupy Wall Street with an understanding, by the way, at the same time, that we can't do without the bankers and the Wall Street. So it's a, 
negativity with an understanding of necessity and a great deal of negative Jewish imagery, negative imagery of the Jews emerges and develops in that way, culminates, it happens, I'm teaching a course in the history of anti-Semitism. We had a whole session on Shakespeare's The Merchant of Venice. And the question in the session was to talk about the split in Shakespeare scholar, among Shakespeare scholars, those who say that it is an anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic image, the Shylock image, and those who say that Shakespeare in writing The Merchant of Venice was essentially trying to overturn the traditional imagery. It was a great session as the students argued among themselves you know, for the positions. I just want to take this one step further, the notion of Jews as a hostile and harmful element in the European population moves beyond money lending into the notion of physical harm. The notion that when the opportunity arises, Jews will actually do physical harm to their Christian neighbors. And as this imagery begins to develop in the Northern European population, uh, it focuses, and this makes a kind of sense, on the most defenseless, the purest and most defenseless element in the Christian population, youngsters. And so you get a whole set of images of Jews murdering youngsters and you can read as the students in my class are reading this week modern European especially Nazi writings that pick up on these medieval motifs uh, because Steve did such a great job on keeping to the time, I'm going to do the same thing and close by saying there's a kind of bifurcation here. Northern European society, civilization, in its vitalization, supported the growth and development of a large segment of 19th, 20th, and 21st century Jewry, while at the same time incubating some of the most negative and harmful imagery imaginable, imagery that played a major role in the horrors of the Holocaust. Thank you. Thank you so much uh, for being here. Can you hear me or should I hold this? Um, and thank you to Queens College for putting together such a wonderful uh, exhibition. Thank you to Amy for organizing this. And thank you to my esteemed panelists. It is an honor to be um, 
to be on the panel with you. And David, you will let me know if I need to cut short my, uh, my presentation. And I hope everybody is awake. Um, and um, so I'm actually going to uh, focus on some of the most negative imagery, right? Both Steve and Bob have reminded us of the complexities of anti-Semitism. I will do that, but I'm actually going to focus more on the negative. There's going to be very little, well, maybe 20 years, 40 years of some, something positive happening. Um, so I've been asked to focus on modern anti-Semitism, and now what I would like to do today is actually move away from the more conventional uh, tendency to focus on Germany and on France, both home to a more kind of uh, racial framing of what anti-Jewish prejudice means. And instead, I would like to focus my discussion of modern anti-Semitism on Russia and explore some of the unique features of anti-Semitism in the Russian Empire um, and later the Soviet Empire. Hopefully I'll have time to cover the Soviet context as well, remembering that by the early 20th century, Russia was home to the largest Jewish community in the world and reminding us the role that is rather, I would say, overlooked in the context of studies of anti-Semitism that Russia played in developing modern anti-Semitism, as well as the role that Soviet Union played in legitimizing the equation of Zionism with fascism and racism. So I hope I will get to that as well. So, I will start by exploring the entangled nature of social and political anti-Semitism under the Tsars, focusing on the nexus between traditional religiously-based anti-Jewish prejudice and modern racially-based understanding of who the Jews were and what anti-Semitism was. And while this is my main focus, I will also explore some of these same developments under the Soviets. So when we think about anti-Semitism, of course, there are many questions that emerge that pertain to the general theoretical uh, realm of understanding what anti-Semitism is, the importance of contingencies, uh, the importance of, you know, taking into consideration what becomes transnational and still interacts with local realities, questions of continuity and rupture, uh, differences between intellectual anti-Semitism, political, social anti-Semitism, and so on. One important thread that I would like you to keep in mind um, during my talk, but I believe it also applies to um, what the previous speakers have, um, have discussed, is the relationship between Jews and the state and how the relationship between the Jews and the state could be the king in the medieval period, but in the modern period it's a state, how this evolved and how it determined ultimately the fate of the Jews. So if we think about Russia, just to give you a sense, you know, historically Jews were not allowed into ethnic Russia, into Moscow, St. Petersburg, into the ethnic borders of Russia. Russia was off limits to the Jewish minority that Russia inherited towards the end of the 18th century when uh, it invaded Poland. Um, and uh, once it invaded Poland, Russia decided not to allow Jews into ethnic Russia, but to kind of uh, circumscribe 
their presence to the so-called Pale of Settlement, the 15 provinces uh, in which Jews could reside that coincide more or less with present-day Belarus, Ukraine, and Poland, and where Jews had been living, many Jews had been living since the 13th century. So this restriction was mostly determined by religiously-based traditional anti-Semitism that had its roots in the Christian tradition. You know, Jews killed um, Christians, uh, killers of Christians. Let me just mention very uh, quickly what Ivan the Terrible did in the 16th century. His son was very um, ill, so he invited the most well-known um, doctor, who was, of course, he was Jewish, and he was from Italy, uh, and he invites him to cure his son, and the doctor is not able to cure his son, and Ivan is convinced that the doctor actually poisoned him, and he kills him on the spot. Uh, so there is this, this prejudice, um, but it's not only the, the prejudice, there also is a concern on the part of Russian merchants that Jews will then interfere with business, right? Why should you, Catherine the Great, allow Jews into Moscow when Moscow is, you know, this is our territory. We, you know, we're doing quite well as businessmen in, um, and so we don't want any kind of competition. Um, the last Jewish community, the largest, but also the last Jewish community in Europe to be emancipated, to receive equal rights, is the Russian Jewish community. And here we have the relationship between Jews and the state and the extent to which um, this had an impact on the emergence of anti-Semitism in Russia. By the late 19th century, it is clear that the Tsar decided that to marginalize Jews was ultimately more useful for the state than to integrate them into society and in the state, which was the opposite conclusion, of course, that had been reached by most European uh, states that uh, you know, had emancipated uh, Jews. Of course, the more legal restrictions the Tsar imposed on the Jews, the more quotas, uh, the more likely young Jews were to embrace the revolution, to become socialists, to fight, you know, for um, a change of regime, to a change of state, right? Uh, so it's, it, they mostly embrace um, socialism as a movement of protest, right? Um, not only does the Tsar decide not to emancipate the Jews, but uses them as a scapegoat to redirect and channel discontent of a socioeconomic nature which was rampant in Russia at the time against the Jews. So if I had asked you in the beginning, you know, what do, I, what do you associate Russia with? What would you have said? What's the word that comes to mind, right? It's pogrom, right? It's pogrom. Um, and, you know, the word pogrom actually up until the 19th century comes from the Russian, means destroy, means ethnic riot, but up until the 19th century, it did not necessarily mean anti-Jewish violence. By the, by the latter part of the 19th century, it does acquire that meaning of anti-Jewish violence because of the anti-Jewish violence that erupts in the context of Russia. You do not have that kind of public display of anti-Jewish violence in Western or in Central Europe until Kristallnacht, right? Until Hitler comes to power, that is, you, don't, you just don't have it. But you do have it in Russia and it builds up in layers from the 1880s um, 
so much so that I would argue that to some degree one cannot happen what happened you know, what cannot understand what happened in the context of the Holocaust without taking into consideration this tolerance that grows in the 1880s, 1890s, 1900s, um, tolerance for anti-Jewish uh, violence. Um, and of course, together with the pogroms, you have an increase of anti-Jewish legislation that encourages furthermore social you know, uh, social anti-Semitism and encourages a degree of, of legitimization for um, anti-Semitism. Um, so that the relationship of the state towards the Jewish minority encourages social anti-Semitism. Um, and there also is, if you think about Russian writers, major Russian writers, you think about Dostoevsky, most of you have read Dostoevsky, you go and read Brothers Karamazov, which is a classic, it's, a, it's you know, uh, he's a genius of literature. He, he believed that Jews needed, you know, he believed in the blood libel. He believed in the accusation of ritual murder. He tells us very clearly in his diary of the writer. Just to give you a sense again of this reactionary atmosphere vis-a-vis -vis the Jews that existed at the time in Russia, let me just remind you the words of a very well-known jurist and statesman who was also the advisor of Alexander III and Nicholas II, the last Tsar's name is Konstantin uh, Pabiedanastiv, who when asked, so how are we going to solve the Jewish question, right? And he said, it's very easy. One third of the Jews will emigrate, one third of the Jews will convert to Christianity, and one third of the Jews will die in the context of pogroms or anti-Jewish violence. Um, now, the Jewish response to this, the Jewish response to the fact that the state rejected this kind of vertical alliance, rejected them uh, as, as part of this, this potential alliance, uh, was, you know, um, you know, embracing this uh, movement of protest, which could have been Zionism, it could have been socialism. Just to give you a sense again of this unique, of how unique anti-Semitism was in the Russian context in the early 20th century, this you know, uh, tolerance of public violence against the minority, uh, deeply embedded in religiously based and traditionally anti-Semitism, but it's also very modern. Um, the, the other quintessential symbol of anti-Semitism in the Russian context besides the pogrom is of course the blood libel. And I want to just mention in Pat very briefly the Bailey's case, the Bailey's affair. Many of you have certainly read, we, I was discussing it earlier with someone, uh, Bernard's Malamud, The Fixer, right? Which is based on the Bailey's case. The Bailey's case is seen at the time as the Dreyfus case of Russia, right? The Dreyfus case is the very well-known political scandal against the ca Captain Dreyfus in France, who was accused of spying for Germany. So his allegiance is put on trial of, of Dreyfus. So the Dreyfus affair could have been very um, possible in Russia, for sure, but the Bailey's case would not have been possible in France at that time. Um, so the Bailey's case, just uh, you know, very briefly, in 1911, in Kiev, the holy city of Russia, the body, the mutilated body of Andrei Yushinsky, who's a 12-year-old Ukrainian boy, is found. It's at the time of Passover. You put one and one, you know, two and two together, and of course, it's a blood libel. 
But this is, is orchestrated from above, uh, meaning that the Tsar, we know from the documents we have, the Tsar was involved, uh, the central authorities are involved. Uh, the police try to actually dispel this myth and say there is no evidence that this actually took place. Um, but, um, but there is, uh, and, and ultimately uh, Bailey's is acquitted, right? Uh, but there is an understanding that the murder was carried out by a member of a religious sect, which in the Russian context meant by implication a Jewish religious sect. Um, so just to give you a sense, I didn't know that we could show slides how embedded this myth uh, was in the context of Russia. I just recently came across this um, very disturbing painting, actually, very, very disturbing, uh, that was found in London um, and that I'm in the process of, you know, studying. Uh, it was commissioned uh, at the beginning of the century, actually before the Bailey's case, by a wealthy Russian um, family uh, who asked the very well-known Hungarian painter Munkac to put to, to paint uh, the blood libel, right? Now, the painting itself is twice as big as this, um, as this. Um, and the, this family fled the Bolsheviks right after the revolution, and, and they brought this with them. Um, and it depicts 12 Jewish men who are performing the ritual murder. Um, they are uh, they're depicted clearly as vampires, or there is, you know, one could, uh, um, one could see the, the, you know, uh, a vampire in, uh, in especially the blood that is dripping from, from, from them. Uh, they're wearing very traditional Jewish clothes, so they're obviously religious, but they're not performing the ritual on, uh, on a young, on a child, on a boy. They're not reenacting the killing of Christ, but they're actually killing a woman, a young woman who is, uh, you know, uh, naked, whose body is, is you know, uh, is surrounded uh, by these 12 Jewish men. So there is, you know, the, the element of rape is, is clearly there. Um, and, uh, and of course, you know, women uh, symbolized throughout the 19th century, the, the allegory of the nation being represented by a woman, that's clear. But here you have the Jews, the Jewish other, who is, um, who is murdering the, the Slavic people, who is murdering the Russian people. Uh, so you have the metamorphosis that, of, of this uh, accusation, right? It's no longer the Jews are killing children, they are killing um, um, women. What is interesting to me is that this painting was put uh, on display in the most, um, you know, distinguished museums in St. Petersburg up until 1913, up until the Baileys case. So you have a very strongly religiously based form of anti-Semitism, but there are also some traits of modern anti-Semitism that are crucial to keep in mind um, and that are not perhaps as sophisticated in their theoretical approach to racism as what we have in the French and German context, but they pioneered, nevertheless, they pioneered some of the conceptions of the Jews as racial and political enemy that emerged in, um, in Europe and that really paved the way to 
the Holocaust, and I'm referring uh, specifically to the protocols of the elders of Zion, the most fascinating and disturbing uh, text in the history of anti-Semitism, which was a fabricated text describing the Jewish plan, plot for global domination. The forgery was put together by the Russian secret police, uh, 1902, it is first published in Russia in 1903, translated into multiple languages. You know, Henry Ford gave money, 500,000 copies were, um, uh, you know, disseminated here. Um, and it is translated in all languages in the beginning of the 20th century. And it originates in Russia. And the London Times in 1921 did, you know, write very clearly, this is a forgery. Um, and, you know, I can't get into the, the details of what it's based on and so on, but this was a crucial text that lies at the core of Hitler's interpretation of anti-Semitism, um, which has been referred to as redemptive anti-Semitism. We, we the, the, the Germans, the Nazis, have to actually redeem humanity from the Jews because of their tendency to exploit uh, hum uh, human beings, right? They're not even human beings, they exploit um, human beings. And of course, this idea of, um, of, of a conspiracy to dominate the world is rooted in traditional anti-Semitism in the Christ killers, in Satan, and actually, in fact, the, the original title of the Russian uh, has the word antichrist. The Jews are presented as the Antichrist, but it's also very modern because it builds on the impossibility of redemption for the Jews uh, and for the Jewish community who have these, this inherent feature, inherent quality that forces them, drives them to exploit the other and to dominate um, the other. And this myth, by the way, is closely intertwined with um, with the idea of Jewish Bolshevism, the idea of Judeo-Bolshevism, Jido uh, Komuna in Polish, which served as an explanation, as an excuse for the Holocaust and for the widespread degree of collaboration uh, with the Germans in Eastern Europe in the killing of Jews during World War II. The identification of, of communism with jury will reveal itself as deadly, and it begins here, it really begins here, it will reveal itself as deadly in the context of World War II in um, Eastern Europe. Um, how am I doing with time? I'm, I'm okay. No, I'm not okay. Okay. <laughs> so, um, so the relationship between Jews and the state um, Will, um, will change significantly with the Bolshevik Revolution. Uh, most Jews actually were anti, you know, were opposed to Bolshevism, uh, were anti-Bolshevik, were either socialist or Zionist, but um, immediately following this, the, um, the Bolshevik Revolution, you have the eruption of a wave of anti-Jewish pogroms that have, have not really been studied sufficiently, that build up on the layers of uh, anti-Jewish violence and tolerance of anti-Jewish violence that I uh, just mentioned. Um, and these pogroms uh, that really result from the clash between the Red Army, the Bolsheviks, and the White Army, just to simplify the chaos, the White Army that fought on behalf of 
uh, the return of the Shah to power um, uh, resulted in the killing of approximately uh, 150,000 Jews in, you know, again, in the context of Ukraine, uh, uh, of what is today Ukraine and Belarus. And because the Red Army is the only army that is not systematically carrying out these pogroms, Jews will eventually be forced to embrace the new state, the Bolshevik state. But you see what this then triggers, it reinforces the myth of uh, Judeo-Bolshevism um, and, um, and, and, and the fact that Leon Trotsky, of course, is the leader of the Red Army, his real name is Bronstein, uh, does not, um, you know, plays against or plays in favor of that, um, of that uh, myth. And of course, if one were to show you images of Trotsky uh, during the Civil War, he is depicted as the devil, right? Um, and um, so I'm gonna skip, I just want to say that during the interwar period, the Soviet Union did fight against anti-Semitism, tamed anti-Semitism as a state, not always successfully, but it did. In the post-war period, the Soviet Union will, ch will you know, change entirely and will embrace, will encourage anti-Semitism. We can discuss the reasons why, but I just want to close by, um, by mentioning um, the, uh, the anti-Zionist campaigns uh, and the extent to which the Jews become the political enemy in the Soviet Union, the political enemy par excellence, uh, in the post-war period uh, in the context of the anti-Zionist campaigns of the 1950s, 60s, 70s. The Soviet Union uh, poured uh, millions of rubles into the anti-Zionist campaigns, into publishing a book like Fascism Under the Blue Star uh, that sold 100,000 copies, which in the Soviet Union at the time is extraordinary. Um, and the Soviet Union is the main initiator, as you know, of the 1975 United Nations resolution declaring Zionism racism. And in many ways, we are still, still dealing with the consequences of the Soviet campaign to discredit Zionism as racism. The rhetoric produced and set in motion by the Soviet Union is in a way alive and well. And even though Russia today and Putin himself no longer embrace that type of rhetoric, still the Soviet Union gave respectability to that, uh, um, to that association and to the equation of Zionism as racism. Thank you. The Goodwin Turnback Museum would like to thank David Kramer, Stephen Fine, Robert Chazen and Elissa Emperad. This exhibition and event was made possible with generous support from the Queens College Center for Jewish Studies and Dr. Rosalind Gold and family in memory of Simon Gold. Additional support was provided by the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs, the Jewish Theological Seminary Library, the Wasserman Jewish Studies Center at Baruch College, the Milton and Sally Avery Arts Foundation, the Queens College Center for Ethnic, Racial, and Religious Understanding, the Scholars at Risk Network at NYU, the Kupfer Baruch Center for the Arts, and the Friends of the Goodwin-Turnbeck Museum. To learn about upcoming events at the Goodwin-Turnbeck Museum, 
visit gtmuseum.org, follow us on Twitter at Goodwin Turnbeck, and find us on Facebook. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and leave us a review. This podcast is a production of the Goodwin Turnbeck Museum. It was created by Joseph Patzner and Shah Khan, and the music was composed by Federico Zegera, all students at Queens College, CUNY.